Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of Talk House Film, and you're listening to the Talk House Film Podcast. On today's episode, we have Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein, both of whom are veterans of the Talk House Podcast. Brownstein has been on four times previously, including twice with Questlove, and almost a year ago exactly, Armisen memorably spoke with his longtime friend, filmmaker Alex Lambert. Brownstein and Armisen are back in the Talkhouse fold to mark the start on IFC of season seven of Portlandia. The show's success and how it has managed to embed itself in the national consciousness means that many of us feel like we really know Fred and Carrie, two people who, at least when mentioned together, no longer need last names to identify them. The conversations people have on Talkhouse podcasts go to surprising new places. So these two friends, who have been collaborating for the best part of 15 years, found themselves discovering things about each other they had never known. The conversation was recorded in the Portlandia offices and the show, how it's made, the line it walks, its place in this newly uncertain world, is naturally a big part of what its creators talk about. But also under discussion are their cooking habits, the controversial, alleged healing qualities of garlic, including a use I need to leave to carry to describe. Fred's trip to Japan to find his roots, analog versus digital in the age of streaming, workspaces, Spinal Tap, the difference between live comedy and live music, and then some revelations at the end that are too fun to even tease. Should we introduce ourselves or anything? So uh, sitting across from me is Carrie Brownstein. And sitting across from me is Fred Armisen. I apologize, I have a little bit of a cold, so... I might sound like I have a cold. Okay, that's excusable. Just for the record. That could be fixed too, I think, right? Maybe <laughs> afterwards? Yes, every single syllable I say. They're just going to take Go in it. and take the na- this sort of nasal tone out of it. I, I imagine that things like that will be possible someday, where you can manipulate sound. Well, they probably could at least. They could pitch it in a different way, but then right. it might sound strange. It was explained to me that in British radio, they um, used to, if guys were older, they used to speed up the tape a little bit so that they sounded more lively. Oh, they could do that for us. Yeah. See the stuffies. Anyway. Hello. Uh, we're sitting here in, I guess it would be the Portlandia writing office in Los Angeles. We wrote the latest season here. Season seven. Yeah. And the premiere was a couple days ago, and it was one that you directed. Yeah. And I loved it. I was so into it. I loved the episode, and this is a secret, this does not go out there, but I fully laughed, even though we're in it, I'm in it, but I was totally laughing at certain parts. It's not a secret anymore. Damn it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I really liked directing you because... Uh, usually in a scene when we're shooting Portlandia, um, I'm acting with you, and I don't really get to see how you work uh, objectively because we're in the process of collaborating uh, and listening, and you know, there's just not that kind of passive observation. Uh, but purposely, when we were figuring out what each of us were going to direct, I should say that Fred also directed an episode this season that hasn't aired yet, but um, we purposely wrote sketches that I wasn't in so that I could 
direct because it's easier to direct something you're not in. Definitely. So it was, it was really lovely to get to work with you that way. Did you, um, did you have to therefore watch takes that didn't work? Did you have to watch me like muscle through some joke that wasn't working? No. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think there were versions of things that didn't work, but for the most part, one great thing about Portlandia is our editors. And they, I feel like yeah. we trust them so implicitly that there are only two or three sketches that I went back and wanted to look at the raw footage of. Uh-huh. You know, mostly they've assembled something. That's uh, such a crazy skill. Like I, I could not edit. I don't think I could either. It's that kind of attention to detail that makes me kind of queasy. You know, when you're looking at something really closely over and over and over again. It seems like like if you're preparing food, like actually like waiting around for everything to simmer and everything, I just can't do it. You know? Yeah, it's like one of my friends told me she had started making her own crackers. Like that to me is what editing is. It's like, ugh, not everyone wants to do that. There's only a certain people that want to make crackers. When when the mics are off or when we're done with this, I'm going to ask who that friend is. Because I'll tell you right now. It's Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a friend of yours too. I, we're, we're going to talk to her right after this. Making crackers. You know, good for her. <laughs> I I have a much easier time. Do buy, you have to hold for this them. train? I don't. I think we have the right to not to have to hold because the reality. This isn't going to be edited against anything. So. There's a train that passes. There's a train. I have a question. This is, I actually don't know this. Do you cook? Very, very little and less and less. So when I was uh, in my 20s, I would, you know, try to like make like pasta and salmon and stuff like that. And then somewhere, like maybe when I was like maybe in my early 30s, I just stopped. I just like, this is not part of my life anymore. I think New York doesn't really lend itself to Mm -hmm. cooking a lot. So, Big fan of cooking breakfast, eggs, etc. But that's it. I think that other part of me, I I put to sleep a long time ago, and and I'm glad. I mean, I I think there are people who are good at it. There are people who are patient. Mm-hmm. I don't like all the extra like food and mess in the, like in the kitchen. I don't like seeing like pieces of the vegetable and stuff. So it's for me, it's breakfast, and that's the end of my. At the end of breakfast, my kitchen says we're done for the day. And I'm like, thank you guys. Right. It's just like, it's a, it's a morning person, your kitchen. That, that's it. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. The kitchen is a morning kitchen. Yeah. Um, what about yourself? Are you, do you? I'm the exact same way. Yeah. There was a time in Portland that I cooked a little bit more. And I will say that shooting Portlandia really upended my relationship to dinner. Yeah. Because it's really long hours. Yeah. Um, both with writing... I was exhausted afterwards and just wanted to pick something up. And then when we're shooting, it's even more exhausting. And so now we're, we've done this for seven years. And I can honestly say that that is when I stopped cooking. And yeah. then I became out of practice. So even though we're only shooting for a couple months, for some reason, it really kind of transformed my evenings. And so now, I also because I work at home most of the time, like in the other months of the year. Yeah. So dinner to me is a time to socialize. Yeah. So that's, and I'm, cause I don't really party. I don't like to go to events or like sort of late night things. 
So dinner is like a perfect opportunity to actually have conversation and catch up with people. Or, or to get out of the house. Yes. <clears throat> even by, by even then, like getting out is like... Yeah, you're restless by then. Yeah. I remember though, like everyone who fancied themselves a cook always just like their whole thing was like, I'm going to put extra garlic. I'm going to put extra... Like, <laughs> but everyone did it. It was just putting extra something in it and like acting like it was a, you know, you're being a little working out of bounds, you know? Do you remember that? I remember I, I that from living, living in like punk and yeah. like sort of communal housing yeah. in Olympia. I, that was the only time I, I had that kind of experience. But yeah. Like, like gar- tons of garlic. Like what? So what? It says this amount. Let's add this. <laughs> well, garlic was also this sort of, it was like, at least on the West Coast, but maybe everywhere, it was like this thing that was considered medicinal and it still is. But it yes. was, you know, it was like someone was always sick and like, sucking on a clove of garlic. Yeah, or like grinding up ginger and garlic in some bowl yeah. or, or something. Or no joke, putting it in their vagina when they had a yeast infection. Never heard that. Not a joke, and not speaking from my own experience, but wow. know that that, it was like garlic was like the cure-all. Really? Yes. It seems like that would be acidic or like. Yes. I, I, I don't even. seems wrong. Yes. Yes. I, I remember when I lived in Chicago, people telling me that yogurt was the way to go for infections. Wait, what is that music now? Oh, just someone going by. Someone passing. Oh, yeah. So there's a, in our offices, there's like a bicycle path next door, through it, which you, I guess you can guess what part of LA it is. It's like by the river, and then there's the train tracks. Um, I feel like we're the first people on Talk House to ever mention yeast infections. I think we're the first ones. Maybe we'll not. We'll look that up. We'll have to look that up. Well, I'm going to listen to every single one. We could even, you know, we're allowed to say maybe the best ones. <laughs> <laughs> We put it in the best way. Yeah. Well, it was just reminding me when I was thinking of garlic. Yeah, garlic. Wow. That that's one I haven't hadn't heard. And the yogurt thing was only told to me, where I was like, "All right, whatever." Yeah. There's a lot of sort of like home remedies. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember the worst thing that somebody ever cooked in a group house was um, refried beans on bread. <laughs> <laughs> it was so. Derelict. It was one of the most derelict meals I've ever witnessed. Yeah. Just can of refried beans. Yeah. Heat it up, just spread it on a piece of white bread. Terrible. What is, like, that's to me not food. I would rather watch someone eating dog food. Yeah. I had a friend who did homemade pizza, but his whole thing was like, he barely cut the vegetables, just a big (laughs) hunk of broccoli that's like, you're supposed to chop it up, you know what I mean? But he's like, no, just, you know, keep it practically whole or or quartered. Yeah. So I just came back from uh, Japan. I went to Tokyo. I came back like a week ago. I'm I'm just switching topics for no reason. That's fine. I I feel like we were definitely had retired that topic. um, It's my first time there. And have you played there? Yeah, I've played in Osaka, uh-huh. Nagoya, and Tokyo. It's what a, did you think of it? First, first of all, we were both about to say, first of all, I am surprised. I know you had never been, but it's still surprising to me because of your heritage and just because yeah. it seems like a place you would love. It's just that I usually travel for work. Yes. So where you had like a job to go to, never have I had an opportunity to work there. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, I thought it was incredible. I mean, I can't believe how big this world is, and then I can't believe how far away it is. And 
it's the most foreign place I've ever been to. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just when you're lost, you're really lost. And you went there and you, your father is half Japanese. Yeah, he's half German, half Japanese. And you were able to see some of your grandfather's... Yeah, I saw his dance studio. My, my grandfather was a well-known uh, dancer and choreographer. He did avant-garde mm -hmm. dance uh, in the 40s and 50s. And then um, I went back and I met his widow. Wow. And uh, Who was not your grandmother? Not my grandmother. Okay. She didn't know about me. Whoa. So that was kind of heavy. But she was very welcoming, very warm. Did you look her up in advance and, and introduce yourself? No. So, so this came, I did a show called Finding Your Roots. Right. And they did all the legwork. They, okay. they were like, this is your grandfather. I, I knew who he was. I'd met him, but I, I didn't know him that well. I knew he was a dancer, but they were like, no, there's a little museum for him. At his, he has a dance studio there. There's so a museum he, for him in Tokyo? Yeah, I mean... It's his own dance studio, right. so it's like, but there's a little exhibition upstairs. Uh -huh. But it's really impressive and well done. And I will say it is not amateur. And it's still a dance studio that is now yeah, run functioning, by other, still still wow, working. That he started. That he started. Modern dance. Yes. That's fascinating. It's called the Kuni Institute for Creative Dance. It's in a suburb of Tokyo, and it's so. She showed me the, his actual dance studio that he designed. And it came right out of my brain. Like, just sort of like, oh, this is the kind of studio I would very austere, gray, mm -hmm. and just, it almost looked German. And it's mm -hmm. sort of like just gray and rectangle. And then this exhibition or exhibit upstairs was just like him playing different characters. That is so weird. He did right? these, he did these, <laughs> he played, like, he did these things where, like, he put on little costumes. And so they had, all of these things. It's it's such an ego trip for me to go like, you know, me, 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 and like how related I am to this guy. But there is something to be said about genetics and, and that kind of thing. And anyway, it was great. And interesting that, because neither of your parents were no. creative types, right? Or no. Performers. It, I guess it jumped over or something. Yeah. I mean, even when you've shown me pictures, I've seen a couple pictures of your grandfather. Yeah. When you see... The similarities, just you know, in your features and in his like physicality, and then you you did send me a a text yeah. message with a photo yeah. from the studio, and it was yeah. uncanny. Yeah, it's I mean, crazy because your like characters. I mean, that is that is so much of your work, your early work especially was built on. Yeah, you know. Mul I mean, multitudes of, of characters and you're so good at embodying different people and I mean you're a great impressionist so oh, thank you Carrie you're welcome but I mean I just I, th I think it's really fascinating what did you feel in, did you feel any kinship culturally with Japan as a whole or did it just feel no I, I didn't yeah. uh, only because it, it, would be, it would be really convenient to say that like of course you know right. it's like um, but my father wasn't brought up in right. With Japanese culture, so as much as I loved it, no, I didn't feel like this is where I'm meant to be. Right. Uh, but it was great, and everyone is so polite, which is what they say about it. Um, it is less. It is less technically ad advanced with technology. I hope my grammar is right. Than you would think. 
I think it it used to be different. I remember yeah. going there in the 90s and it seemed like maybe it was before we became this sort of geopolitical, like everything became globalized and, you know, yes. kind of morphed. Um, and we had, you know, less access to what they were doing. But it used to be, and this is only speaking empirically, I have, you know, I don't even know if this like holds up, but it did seem in like the 90s. Right. And previous to, I'd say like in the last decade, things have changed, but there was technology there that we were yet to see. We, you know, it was just well in advance of, of what we were capable of or even had access to. Um, and I believe that. That seems right. Yeah, just, and just even gadgets, like just, yeah. you know, sort of, ways like utilitarian things to get you through your day or you know sort of like all the frivolity of like gadgetry that like now just permeates our lives yeah I felt like that was everywhere and it was sort of dizzying you know because it was just it was unlike what we had and it felt sort of like Blade Runner you know walking like just thinking oh you know they're so far ahead yeah but um it it's some of it feels that way but it also feels a little analog still uh-huh. like very cash heavy, uh-huh. and a lot of hardware, a lot of CDs still, a lot of DVDs. That's still very alive there. Hmm. And it was explained to me that Netflix doesn't do very well there. They're not quite into streaming yet. Yeah, interesting. So but this is just what was told to me, and who knows what yeah, the reality is. You more know? tactile. I just read that in America, now the way we consume music, like streaming has become like the most profitable. Profitable? means for the businesses, not for the musicians necessarily, but like that's how people are, maybe profitable is the wrong word, but that's the the majority of people in America now listen to music via streaming. No way. Yeah. Well, I'm officially, I have officially taken a step down then because like where I thought I was with the whole game of music with downloading where I was, because I'm still iTunes. Oh, so you actually buy. I buy. Right, so you don't subscribe to Apple Music or Spotify. No, yeah. No. Um, I have a Spotify account, but I don't use it. Mm-hmm. I pref- the only thing for me is I think, and this might be a flaw, is that I just like doing things the official way. I'm like, I want to officially buy the album so that it's like the best sound quality. <laughs> and um, for for some reason, I'm stuck there. So mm-hmm. this is like, I'm just not. I cannot listen to an album on Spotify. I do a little bit because I have Sonos. Uh-huh. And so I love playing stuff via Spotify uh-huh. on Sonos. I like streaming a little bit, but for some reason it feels like a temporary relationship to the album or to the artist. Like to me, like when I actually own it, and I'm sure that's just because I came of age at a time when you collected things yeah. and the experience was very tactile and very just like the discovery process was so different. Like I will temporarily stream something and I won't see that as actually having the album until I go and buy it on vinyl. I, yes, that sounds, that sounds right. I need a coughing break. Hold on. <laughs> I'll talk during it. Perfect. Or I'll cough too so that you just don't know who it is. <laughs> um, they, we can edit, you guys are going to edit that about, right? 
No, nope. we're screwed. I think they're gonna amplify it. Okay. Our sound person just <laughs> he just shrugged. He makes he makes no promises. Yeah, that's in there. Uh, this is real. Um, what are other things like? Does that is that something that makes you feel old? Um, yes, uh, but I don't mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna fight this fight I mean, because I think the fight can make you feel even older. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying this is an absolute. I don't. I mean, I also graduated from CDs to downloading, so I'm not. Right. You know, I'm not allergic to anything new. You don't have like a binder full of CDs. Yeah, no. <laughs> outside of their cases, with just like the artwork. Now I just want to do the sound effect for it. Remember turning those pages? Those pages were. Those pages were too heavy to turn. Just like remember carrying that in your car, like yeah. a case logic, like yeah. <laughs> also, so dangerous. You're just like flipping through a giant, terrible, and also yeah. ugly. The ugliest, ugliest, there, terrible design. Uh, also, begging to be stolen out of your car. Garbage too. Garbage. Garbage. I plastic, plastic, plastic with zipper plastic, zipper plastic, plastic. Remember plastic. the first CDs? They came in like there was. They were in oh. a cardboard box. Yes. Because I think they wanted it the height of an. An LP? Yes. So it was like 12 inches tall, like the bottom eight inches or the bottom whatever. And then didn't have artwork. It would just say Warner Brothers Records or like, you know. Yeah. Uh, although I would say it would be smart for someone to repackage a new album using that long box. Oh, yeah. Someone's got to do that for Record Store Day. You know, that's, that's a good long. idea. I've used Spotify for last minute learning chords to a song. So I'm like, I don't own this. I don't feel like going through downloading it. Let me just put on. Yeah. Baby, hold on to me. Uh huh. Okay. Our lips are sealed. Are these real songs you've learned? <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's like. Wait, that, baby, hold on to you, like any money? money. Yeah. Okay. Why? Why are you learning that song? Uh, I can't remember. That has that like a little riff that keeps repeating, right? And, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. It's like a D chord. Ding, 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 Why don't you tell everyone what it is so they don't have to look dee, it up? Dee, 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 mm-hmm. dee, 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 dee. I wonder if my key is right. If I'm wrong, that's that. But for anyone listening out there, D. That's the riff. Baby, hold on to me. That's the riff, yeah. Yeah. And it repeats that a lot. Yeah, it's like that's the hook of the whole thing. That's the hook. That's the key to music. Anyone writing songs out there, I can't stress it enough. Please have a hook. That's why they nicknamed it Hook. Why? It's not because of the songwriter, David Hook. It's because you need a hook, so to speak, to hook you into listening. Oh, boy. I really talk down to people. I'm sorry. (laughs) So we're sitting here in this Portlandia office that's actually really just your office that you sort of loaned to us. Uh Um, What do you like about, as someone that's self-employed, for the most part, um, what do you like about having a workspace separate from home? How does that change your your process? It w- makes all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. I really think that my brain does one thing at home, mm-hmm. and then as soon as I'm in a place that doesn't have like all the comforts of home, I immediately I could feel my brain going. We've got to finish this. We, we for example, we we could never have done what we did for the show this year if I was just kind of working from home and like I need to be here. With my computer, I, I, this is the place where I also, I like the feeling of driving somewhere to go to work. Mm-hmm. Just like leave my house, arrive somewhere and just like really focus on doing it. And 
This is actually a very pretty place, but when I was at SNL, I had purposefully a very cold, windowless office. Mm -hmm. Like I like the feeling, I don't like it to feel like a clubhouse of (laughs) of warmth, you know, of like comedy posters up and all that stuff. Like I really like, I like it just to feel like a workplace. And even this place, I think for the most part, it's pretty, yeah, there's no, I've been to so many um, work offices where they've got, Posters of themselves and all the and which is perfectly fine, right? Or like ping pong table, yeah. Like yeah, you know, pinball machine, yes, mini fridge, or yeah, yeah. Well, I think sometimes those offices, you know, they're trying to sort of create like an office culture, and also people are working like exorbitant hours, yes. so they're trying to make it homier. But I think for for us, I think as as writers, it's just about it is about almost like lessening the distractions and all of us could write at our homes in our houses if we wanted to. We could email each other and say, let's just- Yeah, but I I like kind of how spare it is in here. Yeah. And it's really rare for LA because there's a like a walking, biking path. Like you you biked to work last year. Yeah, I did. Part of the way. Part of the way. Because, yeah, some of the hills are treacherous, but uh, yeah, it's a little bit of exercise and- I also like that this office isn't, I love studios and lots and everything, but that can sometimes feel a little dull. Yes. When you're, I should say, we wrote on uh, the Paramount lot. Yeah. And that was the most difficult writing we've ever done. That was like a really hard, a very trying season. Like it just felt so at odds with the kind of, I don't know, just like there's something very kind of organic about. Like the, our process, and it just—it always feels like it should be coming from the outside. Yeah. And it felt like we were trying to create. First of all, we had to like carve out that environment, yeah. that outsiderness, that like sense of periphery, and then, and that takes effort just to get out of the mindset of like being on a lot. It was it was so formal, and just felt <clears throat> I don't know too like prescribed. Yeah. And sleepy. There's so much yeah. beige, and I love studios, but it's so comfy and sleepy that uh, it's just a challenge. I felt like the writing for, uh, how did you, I don't know, I guess I'll ask you. I mean, how do you feel like, we finished season seven, and I yeah. always feel like, oh my God, how did we yeah, I, do that? Yeah, it's crazy. And then we have ostensibly one more season. I think like, you guys, it, the, the writing, with you guys is pretty, it's intense for me in that none of you guys are easy. So like, it. I love that like you, John, Graham, everybody is just like, it, an idea isn't just like, oh, whatever you want to do, great. You know, and this is, I like that there's a constant, um, d- just like this barrier we come up with where I'm like, well, this is why it won't work, which is really good. It's good for me. That like, even though this is our show, it doesn't mean I've got like a passport to like sit around and think this seems you know easy and, and dumb. Like, I like that it's still difficult. Yeah, it always feels like a learning curve to me. In some ways, like I feel like I learn something every year. Yeah. Like I like just honing in on an idea or having to justify an idea. Like I feel like this past year, there's a lot of actual sort of like discussion about like the worthiness yeah. of some of the sketches. You know, I was yeah. thinking about like, 
the men's rights thing. Like we had so many discussions, like trying to sort of bring that into existence, Yeah, you know, and just notice, you know, if we had sort of noticed this trend and, and then, but I don't know, I was just reading something that you said in the New York Times, which I thought was interesting where, you know, there has to be a slight, not, I don't know if you would use the word vague or something, but yeah. where, you know, we're not doing a nightly show. We're not doing a weekly show. Like yeah. the, it's not going to come out right as this no. thing is happening. We so, don't have that luxury. Yeah. So there has to be a lasting relatability to it. Yeah. Ideally, you know, that some, something, at, a kernel of, you know, a, a greater truth or yeah. observation that isn't going to hopefully like be gone right. by the time the show comes out. So we have to, I think it all is treacherous sometimes because, you know, we, we were, I don't want to talk about the election, but we had to stop ourselves from talking about yeah. the election. It was during the primaries. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't, we like couldn't we had, stop ourselves. No, and, we're like, and we would stop ourselves and continue anyway. We're like, yeah. we have to stop. And then someone would say something else. Yeah, it's impossible, but. I do feel like that mirrors now in the sense that I think there were many years where we kind of took politics and status quo for granted. Some people did. I mean, it's a privilege to ever take anything for granted, I think, because certain people are always living with a sense of being, you know, fearful or, or other or outside. But, you know, for many people, it just seemed like, Okay, well, we're just on this path, and progress is inevitable, and yeah, and so now I'm like, yeah, we'll be talking about it next season as well. Yeah, I think as far as like um, things having a, a vagueness to them, I don't know if this quite applies, but I remember a few seasons ago we were trying to write a sketch about maybe there was a bass player in it or something like that, or something with bass, and. We kind of came up, came up with a little bit of a, a bump with Spinal Tap, right? And I remember I wrote Michael McKean. I'm name dropping. I'm email name dropping. I wrote him an email saying like, I can't believe we're in whatever the year that was, and I still have to like work against Spinal Tap. Like, why is that still coming up? Is like, that's how good that movie is. Right. And he said that when they when they put it together, they wanted it to have a shelf life. So. I don't know if that quite applies, but it just does make me think that like, I also want our show to have a shelf life too without getting too specific. Yeah. You know? I agree. Yeah. What, <clears throat> you did some live shows this year. I did. Music. Yeah. And what do you, what do you get out of that? Like what, what do you like about It's the only time now where I get to see like fans as people mm-hmm. as, a, as opposed to just something abstract. Uh-huh. And, it really keeps me going for this show. I'm pointing at our table where we write um, because it's easy to say that the show means something to people, but to see it, to see a person, especially when people bring their kids mm-hmm. and they've got things that they want signed, it really um, it is like the very the most basic thing about the show and how it reaches someone and what it means to them uh, in cities that aren't, New York and LA. Mm-hmm. Do you find that when you play with Slater Kinney, is there a part of you that feels like that that that's enriching that part of you? That whatever that muscle is. Well, I really do love performing live. I think 
I mean, you know, just a, a, that connection to the audience, it's, it's impossible to, to feel that, you know, through a television or through social media, you know, that, that, that kind of affection or conversation just feels different than when you're in a room sharing something that exists, you know, outside the bounds of just conversation. Yeah. Um, and I, but like you, I prefer to tour versus a one-off show because that feels like starting a cold engine a little bit. Yes. You know, just even if you rehearse, there's actually nothing that prepares you for getting on stage and you push yourself self further than you would in a rehearsal room. And I, I liked to, to feel that I'm gaining a mastery of that, which you only really get after like a couple weeks on the road. Yeah. And then it just feels... Where it's like more second nature. You don't have to overthink every moment. Yeah. And then you start deviating from, you know, the thing that up until that point you were learning. You know, you, you get it and then you start to sort of expand on it. And that I feel like, like is really exciting because it just becomes... It's not even improvisational, but you feel that kind of elasticity like yeah. in the playing, and then you can feel that in the audience too. Because I think you can control like the room more when you, when there's all these unexpected moments, which seems like it would happen with comedy too, yeah, right? Same thing, yeah. You know, where like you think it's going one way, but then you have the mastery to like turn on a dime. Yeah, because they're looking at you. Like yeah. you're, you know, they're looking to you for that to happen. I still feel like the most like comedy to me seems very vulnerable. I, we, we, you know, we've done a couple like live things together. And that to me is so much harder than getting up there with a band. And then, because there's just, to me, volume is uh-huh. a friend. You know, yeah, it's just yeah. there's something so weaponized about, you know, an amplifier and just that kind of like sonic, like melee that you can uh-huh. kind of dole out. And you can, you can kind of use it to self-soothe and also to punish. Yeah. And, um, but with comedy, I'm always so interested in, with, with live comedy, just those moments that are uncomfortable because, I mean, what have you done in the past? Do you feel like you have a classic moment from a live show where things weren't working and you turned I've, it around? I've, I've made my living of those moments. So mm-hmm. when I first started, that's all it was, was why is this person doing this character with no jokes? Mm-hmm. What is this? And I just use it as kind of as my crutch. It's like almost a gimmick where it's just, that's what it, what it is. And then people kind of come around and it works perfectly fine for them because I don't have like well-crafted jokes. Mm-hmm. So, um, and other than that, when those moments happen, uh, people I've found are always on my side just mm-hmm. because I don't, um, I don't milk it. I don't um, make people feel bad or like I don't make people suffer more. Right. If anything is like a, is a dip, I'll just sort of acknowledge it and move on. Mm-hmm. Because the difference between a music audience and a comedy audience is those comedy audiences are they they paid and they're expecting it. Like they're th- that's all they want to do is just, you know, hear someone say a few things. So um so they're already in their mindset is like ready to go for that. I feel like one thing that we both like is is discomfort, you know, is like taking, you know, we, we both like taking something that is just like getting to the place that's awkward yeah. and then sort of forcing ourselves to kind of stay in that and to explore like, well, what happens after that? 
Yeah. Like if you don't fix it, what happens? Yeah. You know, and I feel like when, um, I think where our like sensibilities coalesce is in that space of just, you know, how couples, you know, deal with yeah. uncomfortable moments or, you know, in the way they talk or it's just, yeah. I feel like we're always exploring like that thorniness. Yeah. I don't know what that comes from or what, I don't even know what that's called because it's pretty complex because mm-hmm. it's not as simple as making people suffer or like, no, it, it's, fact, not it's, an, it's not even that kind of thing. It's like this other weird zone that I just find entertaining and that I believe other people find entertaining too. Yeah, because I think it's not about, it's not mal, like malevolent and it's not about punishing anyone. It's sort of just, yeah. it's almost like trying to find something truer, you know, like what, yeah. where, like when you're faltering or, you know, yeah. that, like that you're going to sort of discover something new about yourself or about someone else. Like yeah. those things are really exciting to me. I like, um, and there's a, there's a surprise element to it too that I like. Yeah. It's a little bit of like, I know you were thinking this is going this direction, but that's a helicopter overhead. We're not going to hold. <laughs> We have we've almost experienced every kind of vehicle. Yeah, I guess not a car. We had a car earlier pull up, and then there was a dog barking. Oh, we've had every we we've had just about everything. We just need a drummer, I guess. A drummer. I'm just gonna. I'm only looking at my watch just for. I'm so sorry. I was just double checking, but we. Pro- I think we have to. I maybe- threw my watch in the garbage before I came here today. That's how much I was looking forward to this. Um, I think we're probably good, right? Yeah. Let's just maybe do a sum a, a sum up. <laughs> oh, let's keep it pro. I guess we need a closing thought. People out there, next time you're in a crowd, I mean, how do, how do, how do these things? <laughs> next time you're in a crowd, is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it was really nice talking to you today. I do feel like I, I learned something. I do too. And I felt like I got to say, we've done a lot of interviews. That was a real conversation. Of course. I also, I mean, I studied up beforehand. I read your Wikipedia page. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah. What's one thing on your Wikipedia page that you know is not true? Nicknames. (laughs) Mine says Army. I'm like, no one's ever called me that. Why would that be in there? Mine has a second middle name (laughs) that is completely unverified and not true. It says that one of my middle names is Grace. (laughs) I'm one of the least graceful people. Why? I mean, why? How did that end up there? I don't know, but I feel like this is just, you know, caveat emptor for anybody. Like, yeah, when you're looking at stuff, do not use Wikipedia. I no. I worry for people using that in on like school reports. I agree. I mean, about much more crucial totally. things than you or totally. I, but just about anything. Totally. Like if they can just give you a, a nickname. From nothing. From then, nothing. Then absolutely, who knows what's in there for And I history. actually asked someone, I said, hey, would it be possible to change? Like, this is actually not true. And they were like, oh, it's really hard to do what? that. It's really hard. You're the person. <laughs> but I'm right here. I could show you my birth certificate. It should be easy it's for not, you. Oh, it's not. So I ended so up just changing my name formally. It's easier to adapt to Wikipedia than to... Yeah. Well, it I'm, was really good to talk to you today, Grace. You too, Army. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. This is Grace and Army. Over and out. Grace and Army. Tune in tomorrow.
is Mick Dawson from TalkHouse Film, and you've been listening to Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein on the TalkHouse Film podcast. And yes, I can confirm that this is the first, and will likely remain the best, discussion of yeast infections on either of the TalkHouse's podcasts. This episode was engineered by Gideon Brower and edited by Mark Yoshizumi. The TalkHouse podcast producer is Elia Einhorn. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit TalkHouse.com slash film. Subscribe to TalkHouse Film and TalkHouse Music Podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review if you can. That's to be edited out. (laughs) But... Edit in point is here. Doot.